she met Bill over with Morse code. And uh, when they got married, they called each other Dot and Dash, which was something that Thomas Edison and his wife called each other. News came as it was available, and so uh, you'd have to wait two or three days until the newspaper arrived in your mailbox if you lived out in the country or whatever. They didn't have radio then, but the beginning started 100 years ago tonight. Hmm. Sounds like people had a lot more patience, maybe. Um, you, you couldn't do the endless refresh of Twitter, and so you had to learn to wait for <laughs> until the news was verified. Exactly. There, there might be a real lesson here, actually. You're saying this has no parallels to today. Maybe we should strive to have some parallels to today. <laughs> might be a lot less stressful. <laughs> I'm with you on that. 100 years ago was a historic night in St. Louis, one that we could all learn something from, as I found out today on St. Louis on the Air. And before we move on, I want to remind you that the biggest source of St. Louis Public Radio's funding comes from listeners like you. Because you value what you hear on St. Louis on the Air, donate today. Go to stlpr.org donate. That's stlpr.org donate. Sarah Fenske. This is St. Louis on the Air. Tonight will likely be a quiet night at 4312 Detonte Street. But a hundred years ago was a much different story. That night, the man of the house in South St. Louis was getting ready to make history. That man was 25-year-old William E. Woods. He had built what the St. Louis Post-Dispatch described as a, quote, wireless telephone sending apparatus. And he intended to use it to send out the results of the 1920 presidential election. The paper described the recipients as, quote, about 5,000 wireless telephone receiving stations within 1,000 miles of St. Louis. Now, these quote-unquote wireless telephones were not the smartphones we have today. Instead, they're what we'd call radios. And the election results that William Woods successfully broadcast that night would go down in history as St. Louis's first radio broadcast. So who was William Woods, and how did he come to make this broadcast? Well, I spoke last week with his grandson. That's Dr. William Woods Batterson. He explained that his grandfather grew up in a wealthy Missouri family. Laughingly, I told somebody the other day when I looked at Bill Woods, it's like uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon as far as the history of St. Louis and Bill's family. Um, it, it's like the Showtozers relatives and the Deloges and the all those people, all those old names. His family started out here in the nineteen in the eighteen twenties. Now, Dr. Batterson explained that his grandfather, Bill Woods, was orphaned in his teenage years. He was sent to live with a rich aunt in 1910. And Dr. Batterson told me that's where he started tinkering with what was that very new technology. So he started out with a crystal radio broadcasting. In 1912, the government uh, made all amateurs get licensed. And they switched them off of the broadcast frequencies like AM and FM and things up to shortwave frequencies. And so... Um, they lost a lot of the original. I think that was in 1912. I don't remember. Uh, but so, so that's what he did. And he did that. And he was, uh, you know, it's like Bill Gates doing computers earlier or something. That's what he was doing. He had some money. Uh, the government in 1916 uh, took all the amateur licenses away. They, and they went and they confiscated their equipment for the war. And so he joined the, uh, the United States Naval Reserve. He was sent to Michigan and trained uh, 
and became a first-class radio man. Then he was sent uh, to various uh, transatlantic stations in the United States. He ended up at a sort of secret facility called Otter Cliffs in, uh, that was run by the Naval Security Service in, on an island outside Bar Harbor, Maine. Okay. It's called Desert Island. And in there, he was in charge of all the radio transmitters and receivers. And he was a guy who just sort of knew it, I think, about how to do things. Okay. And so, so he maintained all that for two or three years. He invented uh, several things that were later patented when he was up there. He, he wasn't an officer. He was the guy who just kept the machines going and uh, the transmitters and stuff like that. And Dr. Batterson told me that his grandfather was very proud of the work he did with that radio unit. They had a famous radio telephone system up there that, that did a bunch of notable things in the war. Um, a blimp got lost. The first dirigible trying to come to the United States from Scotland got lost in the, a storm. And so they talked them back to the United States. And the first airplane to, to cross uh, from the U.S. to Europe was another one that got lost, and they talked them back on course. Hmm. Um, so when he got to St. Louis, he knew how to do radio t- telephone stuff. Okay, which is what which is what the broadcast was in 1920. Now back in St. Louis, Bill Woods married a fellow radio enthusiast. She was a local suffragist named Dorothy Crabb. But she also was, if not the first, one of the first women radio amateurs. She met Bill over with Morse code. And uh, when they got married, they called each other Dot and Dash, which was something that Thomas Edison and his wife called each other. Now, on election night of 1920, Dorothy Crabb Woods was in the hospital. Dr. Batterson told me that she suffered from asthma attacks. But at her hospital bed, she and her husband set up a wireless telephone receiving station. And joining us today to talk about what happened next is Frank Absher. He's the executive director of the St. Louis Media History Foundation, and he's the one who brought this wonderful story to us. So, Frank, welcome. Hey there. How are you, neighbor? So, Frank, thinking <laughs> about uh, Dorothy Crabb's wireless telephone receiving station, I love these terms the Post-Dispatch came up with to describe this new technology. Would this re- telephone receiving station have been any different than the radios we use today? Oh, heck yes. But you've got to remember, first of all, how much of a treat and an uh, odd oddity it was to hear voices coming over the airwaves. Back then, it didn't happen. Uh, and, and so for people to hear this in earphones or anything else was such a revelation. There was a, a form of communication that had never been done before. Hmm. And, and Dr. Batterson described how his grandparents had met using Morse code. When radios were first rolled out, it, it sounds like from what he was telling me, they were doing it to communicate with these dot and dashes. It was only very recently before this 1920 election that you began to hear voices. Exactly. Um, it, and it was all experimental all across the United States. There was no Federal Communications Commission. And uh, in Detroit, for example, uh, in August of that year, 1920, there was a radio station run by the Detroit News that actually started playing music over the air. Hmm. Uh, and uh, later that month, they set out primary election news. But one by one, these places started falling in line. The night of the first broadcast in St. Louis, there were similar broadcasts in Detroit and Buffalo and Pittsburgh, all being done by people who were experimenting. Hmm. And so they were putting these out there on the airwaves. How many people were there to even catch what they were broadcasting? Well, that didn't really matter. 
it was uh, the uniqueness of the thing. Now, keep in mind that radios, radio receivers, hadn't even been invented yet. And so people were building these, and the hobbyists were then waiting for a chance to hear anything they could hear. Uh, Boy Scouts, this was a big deal for them. The Hmm. Boy Scouts would build crystal radio sets and listen with headphones and try to pick up code that was being broadcast over the air. Hmm. So this was something, uh, it sounds like there was a whole group of enthusiasts who were working together to to get these things out there. William Woods decided he was going to do the election results. How did he get the information that he was then able to put out onto the airwaves? The people at the St. Louis Post-Dispatch were really aware that this could be the next big thing. Hmm. And so they hooked up and affiliated with William Woods, and he was able to get the election results from them. They were using their wire services. He would phone them or they would phone him, transfer the information, and then he would use what he got from the Post-Dispatch and broadcast that. It's interesting. Did they not see this at all as competition, that people might want to tune into radio rather than reading their newspaper? Well, it really wasn't competition at first. In fact, there were three main ownership groups of the early radio stations, universities, department stores, and newspapers. The department stores did it because they could sell radios if people knew that there were radio stations they could listen to. Hmm. The newspapers were the same way. They could talk about what was coming up in the Post-Dispatch on the Post-Dispatch radio station. Hmm. So there was a little bit of cross-promotion going on. Exactly. And uh, the people who built this radio station that was first heard in St. Louis 100 years ago today, um, uh, Lester Benson and William Woods, two young men, 25 and 20 years old, uh, later ended up building the first radio transmitter for KSD radio, the first radio transmitter for WEW radio, which were the two first licensed commercial stations in St. Louis. Hmm. I did think it was interesting that even before they did this historic broadcast, they were able to get some publicity in the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. Do you think that uh, Bill Woods was looking at this as a way to build this business and to, to drum up interest in what he was interested in? Well, there was a uh, an organization, the St. Louis Radio Relay League, and Bill was, or excuse me, Lester Benson was a, a, a big factor there. Of the pair that actually put these broadcasts together, William Woods was the technical genius, hmm. and Lester Benson was a promoter. And so the two of them worked well. In fact, between the broadcasts uh, in 1920 and the first radio station broadcasts in St. Louis, there were actual radio broadcasts from local homes of uh, music and dancing and, and, and lectures and so forth from these members of the St. Louis Radio Relay Association. Hmm. That's interesting. And how long was it from this broadcast here in 1920 until we started seeing something more of a professional operation that would have done things like broadcast election results? Well, WEW in St. Louis signed on the air with their first regular broadcast uh, on April 21st, 1921. So not that much long after this. Right. And then KSD signed on with their first broadcast uh, the following year, March of uh, 1922. So there were two radio stations on the air in St. Louis within a couple of years of this going on. And uh, keep in mind, too, that they weren't radio stations like we think of them today. They would come on the air and they'd be on for three or four hours and then they'd sign off because they didn't have anything else to broadcast. <laughs> I know that feeling sometimes. There's just not enough news, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you shut it down. So on election night, um, we know that Woods did 
this from Detanti Avenue or Detanti Street. And yes, what's interesting yes. is, according to the contemporaneous accounts of this, Benson then picked up this broadcast and sent it to a much wider area. What do you know about what was going on with that sort of relay they had there? There's not a lot of documentation of this event other than what you've already described. But Benson was down further south in St. Louis on a street called Wisehan, which is now uh, uh, Bonita. Hmm. And he was broadcasting from a different transmitter. And the way I understood it, again, this is all just piecing it together. He was broadcasting the information in code and Woods was broadcasting the information with his voice. Okay. And so when the Post-Dispatch reported that this broadcast had been heard in Arkansas and it had been heard in North Dakota, that must have been the Morse code aspect of it. No, no, exactly. No, it was not that. It was it was William Woods being heard in those places. Woods being essentially the first radio announcer in St. Louis. Hmm. So he had a strong enough signal, even without that oh, yes. relay into the yes. code, that was being reached that far away. Yes, but there were no other radio stations to provide competition for those uh, frequencies. Everything was so much easier back in the day. Um, oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> <laughs> no, not at all. I, <laughs> little little sarcasm there. I did want to mention, as I mentioned, that uh, Dorothy Crabwoods was in the hospital that night. And I mm-hmm. asked Dr. Batterson if his grandmother would have been happy to get these election results. And he said, you know, she was a political junkie. This was the first year that women had the right to vote. And so she right. had the ability to do this. Um, but he said that she would not have been happy about the results because her family were all Democrats. And this was the year that the Republican Warren G. Harding won. And Harding won, yes. Yeah. So there's a little bit of a disappointment. She was able to get the results. They were not the results she'd been hoping for. I also asked Dr. William Batterson if his grandfather was proud of making that first broadcast. And here's what he told me in answer to that. Uh, he was most proud of being in that Otter Cliffs uh radio stuff. Um, on his tombstone, it says uh, William Evans Woods. Then it says CRM, which stood for Chief Radio Man. Hmm. And, um, and then it said World War I under that. He, and he kept in touch with all these other fellows that were up there. A lot of them became very important uh, in the development of radio technology in the United States. And uh, he had some money, and during the Depression, when a lot of them were broke, he supported them. And then uh, when they were older, he convinced a bunch of them to move down to Florida, where he lived. Um, so they all got together again and gang back together again in Florida when they are in their 60s. And that is Dr. William Batterson. He also told me this about visiting his grandfather in Florida. I didn't really get to know him until I was maybe 8 or 10 years old, when, when my the kids were old enough for us all to go down there, you know, in a, in a big station wagon with a bunch of screaming. And um, that's when I got to know him. And I, I, he tried to get me to do radio. Um, he was teaching me Morse code. When I came back to St. Louis, uh, I wanted to get a shortwave radio. And he sent me down to Lester Benson, who had been his partner in the 1920s. And Lester still had his store. And I went down there and got a radio and came back and he would talk to me, but he, would, he wouldn't call me on the phone. He would uh, talk over the radio to various radio amateurs in St. Louis who had what they called a phone patch. And they would, they would hook their phone up to their ham radios and then put the phone in some kind of cradle and then call me. And so that's how he did all these long-distance phone calls. 
um, he wanted to, to get a license back then, you had to learn Morse code. Mm-hmm. And he wanted me to learn Morse code. And I said, okay, I tried. But he would send me Morse code signals at like 60 words a minute, which was impossible even for professionals to understand. And, and he thought that was a great joke. And that is Dr. William Batterson. He's talking about his grandfather's long love of radio. And my guest today is Frank Absher, who's the executive director of the St. Louis Media History Foundation. Uh, Frank, it sounds like once you're a radio guy, you're always a radio guy. (laughs) Until you have to start eating well, and then you find a job that pays better. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this sounds like a a thing that many radio men could tell you. Um, But look, your organization, you seek to preserve this kind of history. And um, what kind of history do you have? Uh, what kind of documentation do we have about these early days of radio? As you say, there were some commercial stations on the air within just about a year of this. That's a good question. And it should be noted because I'm sure there are some listeners who are saying, wait a minute, we've heard about KDKA in Pittsburgh doing this, but why haven't we heard about St. Louis? The answer is KDKA was owned by the Westinghouse Corporation, and they had a wonderful public relations office that just churned this stuff out, Mm -hmm. which is why in history books today, you'll read KDKA was the first. Actually, there were several of them who were first. And that's why we exist as a St. Louis Media History Foundation to preserve the information that people would want to know about St. Louis media. So you feel like these two men, uh, William Woods and, and Lester Benson, they should get more credit for what they did on election night. Oh, absolutely. William Woods was a, an electronics genius. Lester Benson went on to own and operate a radio station WIL here in St. Louis and make quite a name for himself in the broadcasting business. But they're not names that are well known now because there was no big public relations firm. Hmm. Well, thank God for your organization. You're there to sort of right that wrong a little bit and at least get this news front and center um, for those of us locally to appreciate this history. And I'm wondering what's on your mind as you're thinking about what happened 100 years ago today and what could be happening tomorrow night with election night broadcasts. Do you see some parallels between what was happening then and and the work that a lot of radio people and, and TV people will be doing tomorrow night? I'm afraid there aren't any parallels because we here today in our society expect instant gratification. If it's not fast enough for projections on one of these television station networks, we we may go to the, the computer and see if somebody else is projecting it. When in reality, back then, news was not instant. Hmm. News came as it was available. And so uh, you'd have to wait two or three days until the newspaper arrived in your mailbox if you lived out in the country or whatever. They didn't have radio then, but the beginning started 100 years ago tonight. Hmm. Sounds like people had a lot more patience, maybe. Um, you, you couldn't do the endless refresh of Twitter, and so you had to learn to wait for <laughs> until the news was verified. Exactly. There, there might be a real lesson here, actually. You're saying this has no parallels to today. Maybe we should strive to have some parallels to today. <laughs> might be a lot less stressful. <laughs> I'm with you on that. Well, Frank Absher, Executive Director of the St. Louis Media History Foundation, I want to thank you so much for joining us and, and sharing this wonderful history. May I thank you and your staff for shining some light on this piece of uh, local history. Yeah, amazing to think this was just 100 years ago. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Do you find yourself regularly listening to episodes of St. Louis on the Air? Suggest us to a friend you think might enjoy our conversations. 
and leave us a review and rating on Apple Podcasts on the App Store. It's the simplest way to help people discover our show. Thanks. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, providing more than 41,000 jobs in the production of wood pallets, railroad ties, white oak barrels, hardwood floors, and more. Details at ChooseWood.com.